0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The overriding goal of the Paris Climate Accord is to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius, the point beyond which the impacts of climate change are feared to be most severe and enduring. Staying below the two-degree limit will require two complementary strategies— the first, mitigation, is now familiar and involves limiting carbon dioxide emissions today by turning to cleaner energy and greater energy efficiency. The second strategy is equally important in limiting future climate impacts, yet has received much less attention in public dialogue and policy circles. The strategy, negative emissions, doesn't yet exist in any practical sense, yet, negative emissions will be counted upon to remove decades worth of carbon dioxide emissions from the Earth's atmosphere. By the end of this century, at their best, negative emissions technologies will play a vital role in holding climate change in check. But the technologies may also give us a false sense of security that today's carbon emissions can be erased at some point in the future. In today's podcast, we'll take a close look at negative emissions, including their potential and the challenges to be overcome if they're to have a meaningful impact on the climate. My guest is Glenn Peters, Research Director at the Center for International Climate Research in Oslo, Norway. Glenn's work focuses on the human drivers of climate change and international climate policy. Glenn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to join you, a podcast that I'm usually listening to. So, nice to be on the other side of the seat.
0: Glenn, that's great to hear and great to hear that we're reaching an international audience and and we're really happy to finally have you here on the show Just to start out, could you tell us about the focus of your work on energy use and climate change uh, and the work at the Center for International Climate Research in Oslo?
1: Yeah, so Cicero is a good mix of people. We're about 60 researchers, and we cover lots of disciplines, which is great because we can dig into various problems on different aspects, and negative emissions is certainly one of those areas that we sort of dig into uh, from a few different dimensions. So myself and some of my colleagues are really looking at the scenario side, how negative emissions are used in scenarios, uh, what scales may be feasible, and those types of questions. Also have colleagues which look at, uh, let's say, more of the economic aspects, uh, what policy instruments may be used to encourage negative emissions, and have colleagues from the political scientists or trying to understand the way people interpret and interact with negative emissions. Um, So, you know, we're covering quite a few different aspects of the the negative emissions picture, which is one of the great things of the technology. You can look at it from so many different angles.
0: So last October... Uh, The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, more commonly called the IPCC, released a report that has been widely, very widely cited since. The report, called Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Celsius, did a couple of important things. Fundamentally, it made some predictions about how quickly Earth's climate is going to heat up. And second and probably most important, it laid out pathways for action to limit warming to the 1.5 to 2 degree Celsius goal, which is what's in the Paris Climate uh, uh, Accord, It's that goal. Every pathway requires negative emissions and lots of it. Can you give us an introduction to what negative emissions are conceptually and, and their purpose?
1: Yeah, so they've become a pretty important aspect of emission scenarios for ambitious climate targets. Um, actually, you could go even a, a little bit further. Whenever you stabilise Global temperatures, you need emissions to be zero. Uh, So even if you stabilise at three degrees, you still need to get to zero emissions. And then negative emission technologies come into play. So why do we need them? What role do they play? And generally we need them for for two reasons. Uh, There's some sectors we probably can't get to zero, uh, maybe too costly to get to zero. The so-called hard-to-mitigate sectors, Maybe we can't decarbonise aviation fully or maybe some industry sectors, we can't get to zero. Um, And because of those hard-to-mitigate sectors, we need to offset them somehow. So if we emit a billion tonnes from those hard-to-mitigate sectors, then we need a billion tonnes of negative emissions to offset them. And the other aspect of negative emissions is to basically pay back the debt for reducing emissions too slowly. So if we don't reduce emissions fast enough and temperatures go too high, then we want temperatures to come back down, so we have negative emissions to, you know, wind back the clock, if you like. So they're the two functions that are essentially played by negative emissions.
0: Let me ask you this. Is there any chance that we could limit climate change to the two-degree goal without negative emissions? Two, uh,
1: Two degrees, maybe. One and a half degrees, I'd say not. It depends a little bit. It becomes a little bit like those debates about 100% renewables. Can we do it 100% renewables or not? Now, maybe 90% renewables with some additional technologies makes it a lot cheaper and a lot easier. So I'd say a little bit the same with negative emissions. So maybe we can theoretically get to two degrees without any negative emissions whatsoever, but it may be a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier if we allow some level of negative emissions uh, and this is something that I guess we're going to touch on at several times is the scale of the negative emissions a little bit or a lot. But let's say it's certainly a lot harder without any negative emissions because you're essentially tying one hand behind your back.
0: And you have to rely, I, I would imagine, immediately on mitigation, you know, strong mitigation measures in the near term.
1: Yes. So number one strategy is always reduce emissions. Um, and if you can't get them down fast enough or to zero, then you bring in the negative emissions. One thing that's a little bit important to note though, let's say if you look at a scenario that gets to net zero in about 2050, to get the level of negative emissions that you may need in 2050 or 2100, you really need to start deploying those negative emissions basically today. Mm -hmm. So just when the scenario goes below zero, because you've got some positive emissions and some negative emissions which add together to get the net emissions, you need to be scaling up the negative emissions now. So we often think about it as a technology for the future, but it's also a technology that we need to start deploying now if we're going to use it at any scale. Well,
0: it's interesting that you say that because in your work, you've, you've noted that the importance of negative emissions has been lost on policymakers, at least until this point. Why is that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question so essentially negative emissions came to the fore in the fifth assessment report from the ipcc it's governmental panel on climate change that was a big report that was published around 2014 15 so a lot of the scenarios there actually pretty much all of them had negative emissions at at some scale but unless you're into the details you don't really see it and one of the problems is that when emission pathways are shown, the negative emissions are added together with the fossil emissions. So if you look at electricity generation, you might have some coal and some gas, and you've got some negative emissions, electricity from bioenergy with CCS, which is negative emissions, and so it's all added together and you don't really see the important contribution of negative emissions. So that's a sort of a, I suppose you would say, an analytical-type problem, uh, which sort of hides the scale of the negative emissions. So that's one key issue. And, you know, when you try and simplify a message to a policymaker, say things like, you know, reduce emissions by 50% by a certain date or or something, that's sort of not being very explicit about the need for negative emissions. So um, you need to sort of explain both the positive and the negative emissions and the different stories behind that. So you can never be too simple. With the message,
0: so so let's look at a very simple uh, issue for just a moment, or a number. How much CO two will we need to remove from the atmosphere?
1: Yeah, so that will vary by model, of course. You know, one answer to that question is zero. Um, We may be able to get there without any, but if you look broadly across the the bunch of you know hundreds of scenarios that we have. You'll get some which on the low end, I'd say, around about the 5 billion tons of CO2. On the high end, maybe about 40 billion tons. They're the, let's say, sort of extremes. So 40 billion tons CO2 per year is what we currently emit. So at the end of the century, there'll be some scenarios which are removing as much carbon from the atmosphere as we currently put into the atmosphere today.
0: Is that on a yearly basis, or is there some larger sum over the years? That's
1: an annual basis, Mm -hmm. so every year, and then that accumulates over time. But, you know, on an average or a median, you know, across the scenarios, you're probably looking at something like 10 to 15 billion tons per year. So, let's say a quarter of current emissions would be physically removed from the atmosphere every year.
0: So, we'd be removing the the emissions that we're, we're emitting today and also sucking emissions out that are already up there, if I understand correctly.
1: Yeah, well... Well, what we should be doing, just to clarify there, is you know, we currently emit about 40 billion tonnes, so we need to get that as close as possible to zero. So that might be you know, 3, 4, 5 billion tonnes in, in some scenarios. And then on top of that, in addition to that, we need to remove carbon, let's say, 10 billion tonnes a year. So if we've got 3 billion tonnes in positive emissions, then 10 billion tonnes of negative emissions, 3 minus 10, will be net negative by about 7 billion tonnes a year. So we're getting complex here with positives and negatives. Um, but either way, the scale is huge. So comparatively speaking, it's about 25% of current emissions.
0: I've seen uh, projections that put it very bluntly that by the end of the century, we would need to eliminate 1,200 gigatons, which is equivalent to about 30 years of emissions at our current rate. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah,
1: no, that's um, no, those all sorts of, yep, they're all reasonable. And another way to, to look at the scale is these sorts of numbers are several times larger than the current oil and gas industry in terms of volume. Mm-hmm. So essentially we need to build an industry, let's say three, four times the size of the current oil and gas industry, just to clean up our waste. So you know, from that perspective, it's a, you know, there's no uh, underestimating or undervaluing how big these negative emissions are in many scenarios. And just to clarify, and this goes back to you mentioned the 1.5 degree reports, they did look at a few scenarios that, let's say, in, in quotes, low negative emissions. Um, they sort of profiled four scenarios in that report. One of the scenarios in particular didn't use carbon capture and storage at all, but it did use a lot of afforestation, so a, a, you know, basically growing trees. And the scale of land required to afforest is still around about 5 billion tonnes per year in terms of CO2. And we're talking in areas like India's and bigger than India's in terms of land areas. So scenarios that are on the low end of the scale or don't use any carbon capture and storage whatsoever still use a lot of what's called natural climate solutions at scale. So as you sort of said before, there's virtually no scenario that we know of that doesn't have negative emissions for a 1.5 degree or 2 degree pathway.
0: So, Glenn, let me ask you this. What are the primary technologies that we're talking about that will be used for negative emissions?
1: Yeah, so you can broadly classify the technologies into two types, the natural ones and the sort of engineered or industrial types. The natural ones, things like afforestation, soil management, and so on, um, are technologies that we already sort of deal with somewhat. And then there's the engineered ones, Uh, The technologies that are deployed a lot in scenarios, things like bioenergy with CCS, with carbon capture and storage, and direct air capture. Um, So bioenergy with CCS, basically you grow forests or energy crops, grow some sort of biomass that is carbon neutral, you burn that biomass to produce energy, and then you catch the CO2 at the power plant and store it underground. So that's bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECS. And then direct air capture is, where you basically have a fancy machine, if you like, um, where through chemical reactions you extract CO2 from the atmosphere. That sounds sort of nice, but it requires a huge amount of energy to run those
0: machines. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the current state of the art for these uh, technologies? Are they implemented in any scale? Are there companies of note that are working on these?
1: Yeah, so with bioenergy, with CCS, there's a couple of examples you can... Point to around the world. There's a power plant, or yeah, power plant facility in um, Illinois in the U.S. Where through ethanol production they're capturing some CO2, which you could sort of call BECS, although it's not their entry point into the, the um, into the technology. So they didn't go out to capture CO2. Um, that wasn't their original goal. You have an example in the UK with the Drax power plant, where they're currently it's a coal power plant that's being converted to wood pellets, and now they're planning on putting carbon capture and storage on top of that. So now that would be a a Bex example. So there, and there's probably other smaller examples around. For direct air capture, there's a few different initiatives. There's a Canadian initiative called Carbon Engineering, and another one in uh, Switzerland called uh, Climeworks, and they're sort of using a different way, but both chemical reactions to extract CO2 directly from the air. Although one interesting thing about both of these companies is they're trying to take essentially a carbon capture and utilisation pathway. So carbon engineering in particular uh, has a focus on converting that carbon back into fuel. And then when you burn that fuel, the carbon will go back into the atmosphere. So it's not capturing the CO2, putting it in the ground, it's capturing the CO2, using it as fuel, and then putting it back into the atmosphere and following that cycle around. So that's an important distinction to make, that not all direct air capture is used to store carbon.
0: You know, looking at BEX for just a moment, bio, bioenergy with carbon capture and, and storage, a lot of land is going to be needed to grow those fuel crops. <laughs> I, I, I think that may be lost. I've seen um, uh, projections that at least twice the land area of India would be needed to grow enough crops that would then be burned and the capture would be carb- captured from them, the carbon, to actually make a meaningful impact on the climate. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah, that's right. We've sort of developed a new uh, unit, the India measure. So, um, yeah, these scenarios for bioenergy with CCS using anywhere between, let's say, one and five Indias, which is huge. Um, No way about it, uh, no way around that. But just by by comparison, if you grow trees to grow forests, afforestation, then you just use that land once. So that's actually very land intensive, whereas with bioenergy with CCS, if you grow the crop, you harvest it, you capture the, capture the carbon, you grow the crop again, you grow the crop again, you grow the crop again, so you can reuse the land. So it's more like a continual farming process, which is a bit of an important distinction to remember. But the land areas are huge, um, and a lot of that land is made available by assuming large amounts of yield improvements in agriculture, or we stop eating meat or eat a lot less meat to uh, free up pasture land and, and so on. So... It's not only the bioenergy area, but it's the remarkable improvements we need in yields in agriculture more broadly to make that land available, which is a big issue as well.
0: So I want to stay with that point for just a moment. So really, the IPCC is assuming that we're going to have a lot of negative emissions in most of the most likely scenarios going forward. Um, but these are the types of land areas that we're going to need to make this works. So, I mean, so it sounds like there's a bit of a a disconnect between what we're saying we're going to need from negative emissions and the demands that we're going to have for land. I mean, the population is only growing. We're going to need more land to feed everyone, and we're going to need more land to do this this BEX.
1: Yep, that's right. No one said this was going to be <laughs> easy. Um, but, yeah, that's... Uh you know, it's a sort of a. You know, I wouldn't say that we've solved all the issues around here. Many people will disagree with the, the results that come out of some of the models. Will you know push back on some of the assumptions? So we had the 1.5 degree report that you mentioned um, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in October last year. In August this year, I think we're going to have a special report on land. Okay. And that may give a bit more nuanced picture to this exact same question. So that will be something that will be interesting to see how that report deals with these conflicts that we're going to have. But, um, you know, just sort of to add on there, it's in, you know, some people say, well, we can use the bioenergy on land that's currently not used or not productive, but in a sense, you know, well, the land's not productive for a reason, we're not using it for a reason because it's not productive. So you also want to put the bioenergy on land that's productive to get the most out of your bioenergy. So you can't avoid there's going to be land conflicts.
0: You know, a, a separate part of that that I was just thinking about also is that you're going to need to have some proximity to the, the underground storage where you can pump all this carbon dioxide and keep it hopefully forever, right? So I assume that these areas that, that, that where the farms would be for the biomass would have to be close to these um, to these areas, which means it's kind of a global effort, right? You can't just say Country X is going to focus on this and we're going to just do it here because we may not have access to storage or we may not have the land. It sounds like it's going to take a global coordinated effort to do this.
1: Yes, it needs a very coordinated effort, and it sort of runs through several layers. So biomass, per se, is not a very energy-dense energy source. Now, oil packs a lot more energy in the given volume. Bioenergy, you have, it's very dispersed when it grows. You have to bring it together. Uh, which takes work and effort. You need to um, put it into your power plants, and that power plant needs to be in some relative proximity to a CO2 transportation network, pipeline network, or whatever it is, which then needs to link to a storage site. You also have to verify along all these paths. You know, is bioenergy carbon neutral? Is there any leaks? Did how much CO2 did we capture when we burnt it? Does any of it leak out of the ground? So you know, this is a hugely complex task. And these sorts of more practical issues I don't think are really captured so well in scenarios, so this is another important point to remember. Although on the flip side, direct air capture is probably much better in some respects there. Um, The catch is you need a power plant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So basically to remove a million tonnes of CO2 from direct air capture, you need a mini power plant of about 500 megawatts sitting next to it to run that direct air capture facility. Then you need to link in to the storage network and, and so on. So the constraints are a little bit different, but there's still constraints there for both those technologies.
0: I, I guess you could use power from a BEX power plant to, to fuel the direct air capture plant.
1: Yes, I think that's my favorite idea, <laughs> definitely.
0: <laughs> so, so the cost for this will be very high. A, a recent paper on the political economy of negative emissions, and it appeared in the journal Climate Policy, said that the cost of BEX could fall to about hundred to $150 per tonne optimistically by the year 2030, at which point it reasons that adoption of BECS could pick up. It says that direct air capture could take much longer to be economically attractive. Uh, to to get, get some perspective, is there an average benchmark cost for mitigation today that, that uh, direct air capture is kind of measured against?
1: No, you wouldn't really... Well, I guess you could frame it against what the carbon price is. If your carbon price is $20 a tonne or $50 a tonne, that's nowhere near sufficient to cover $100 or $150 a tonne. So I guess the carbon price is the ultimate benchmark, although taking carbon prices as your policy entry point into negative emissions may not be so effective because, you know, people might start... Well, the negative emissions, you'll get a rebate back. So if you get negative emissions, you'll get paid um, to do that. Um, and people will also, if you had an emission cap, if you like, by using negative emissions, it actually, in effect, makes that cap bigger. So there's all sorts of complex issues which may arise by trying to use a carbon price specifically for um, negative emissions.
0: Got it. Okay. I feel like we're focusing on a lot of the challenges here to make emissions. And at some point, hopefully, we'll get to some some more of the positive aspects. But I I did want to bring up one other issue here. And that is that when we think about the energy transition that we're going through or we're beginning, which is away from fossil fuels, uh, more towards renewables, we aren't necessarily taking into account, or at least I haven't seen anything really written about the fact that with bioenergy carbon capture and storage, we're going to need a lot of thermal power plants to burn all that biomass. Haven't seen anything said about the fact that we will need those plants.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's something that tends to get lost in these discussions, the building up of the infrastructure, and it comes directly back to the costs that you were talking about and you know how will the costs of BECS play out in the future you know, given that the technology is basically burning biomass in a power plant, it's very similar to coal, so we need to build essentially coal power plants for burning biomass. Now, that's a technology that we have and we know how to do, but it's an advanced technology in the sense that the costs probably aren't going to decline. Uh, we have to put carbon capture and storage on it, another big, ugly, let's say, technology where cost declines may not be so large. Um... When we're feeding it lots of bioenergy, the costs of that bioenergy feedstock may go up, etc. So we sort of evaluate that, you know, even though the costs of bioenergy with CCS may get down to 100 or $150 a tonne, maybe you won't get much lower than that. Whereas with direct air capture, which you can make a little bit more modular, maybe you can get the costs to come down. Now, that technology... You know, the cost of that may be 100 or $600 a ton, depending on the studies you want to look at. Let's say it's $300 a ton just to take a central sort of value. Uh, we may be able to get that cost to come down lower than the BEC. So in direct air capture is expensive in the short term, but it may be cheaper in the, the long term, which is an interesting um, dynamic to think about.
0: In 2016, you co-wrote an article that was published in the, in Science that was titled, the trouble with negative emissions. In that paper, you didn't mince words in stating that negative emissions present a moral hazard. Can you explain what you meant?
1: Yeah, so there's many different terms, moral hazard. Um, You know, some will argue that if you don't consider negative emissions, that's a moral hazard and and so on. So what we meant by moral hazard in our our context is that when we look at emission pathways going forward, uh, we see that sort of net pathway, you know, 50% reduction by a given year and and so on and so forth. And many don't realise that embedded in that pathway is a lot of negative emissions. So if we follow that pathway going for a 50% reduction by, let's say, 2040, and we don't deploy the negative emissions along the way, then we'll end up having emissions that are way higher than we should have into into the future. So if we follow those pathways without knowing there's negative emissions embedded in them, don't deploy the negative emissions, then we'll end up being in a much worse situation, um, and it's the future generations that will pay those costs in terms of climate impacts or having to speed up mitigation or otherwise. So the implication of that is we would need to mitigate faster now in the short term. So I focus really on short-term emission reductions, which in a sense is a somewhat moot point because emissions are still rising, but. Um, You know, the moral hazard is depending on a technology which we don't know it will exist.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, The IPCC assumes that negative emissions will be cost-effective in the future and even cheaper than current mitigation efforts. How how does it arrive at at that conclusion?
1: That's a good question. (laughs) You know, these models are generally a a cost-effective type setup in various um, ways, shapes, and forms. But now, as you said, the models basically find... You know, because they deploy negative emissions, the models are saying that it is cheaper to have negative emissions in the future than it is to have short-term emission reductions now. Um, What's driving that? You know, I'd say there's some questions on model structure and experimental design, but also discount rate will be important. So when you discount future costs, you know, you will see that short-term mitigation is expensive. That negative emissions in 2100 almost irrelevant how much it costs. It'll be basically free given a high discount rate or a, even a low discount rate uh, in a 100-year time frame. The costs get discounted a lot. On top of that, if you're removing carbon from the atmosphere, you're getting a tax rebate, tax income essentially, a benefit from removing that carbon, which doesn't get discounted over time. So any logical scenario should logically use this technology. Um, And there's a lot of weird things that can happen because of this. So if you think you're driving an electric car, your electric car is driven by bioenergy with CCS, so negative emissions. The more you drive your car, the more electricity you consume, the more CO2 you remove from the atmosphere. So you can sort of see that you might get some really weird things playing out in a perfectly rational model (laughs) that does exactly what it's told. Mm. You know, driving your car will save the climate's problems by removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Hmm. So, yeah, I think there's a variety of structural questions in there. Discount rate will be one important one. There's sort of a danger of using such long-term optimization in your scenarios, I think.
0: You know, we've been tough on negative emissions, or I have at least, you know, so far in this, in this, in this recording. But we're going to need them, right? And we're going to need them in, in large scale. So are there reasons to be
1: optimistic
0: they'll scale up and reach their potential?
1: I hope so. Um, You know, the number one goal, as we we said earlier, is we have to get emissions going down. So, in a sense, if we don't get emissions, start reducing emissions, it's almost pointless whether we even think about negative emissions. So, number one show in town is to get the emissions going down. You know, my sort of personal... You know, there's different types of uh, negative emissions that we mentioned, afforestation and, and so on, which we can get some of those moving, I'm sure bioenergy with CCS I think is going to have a lot of challenges in a practical sense particularly because we already have challenges with bioenergy, we already have challenges with CCS. So the direct air capture, even though it's um, very expensive now, I think probably has the greatest potential for cost declines, it probably has the greatest potential for public acceptance so maybe we could get some pleasant surprises on the direct air capture and if I take the 100% renewable um, arguments um, on face value and we can get there then you know some people argue that we'll have free plentiful electricity in the future in which case it won't be so costly to run direct air capture you know there's a lot of things that need to fall in place for that to happen but um i think that's one area where we could be let's say hopeful cautiously optimistic but i mean there's a huge amount of um water to flow under the bridge for those sorts of things to happen.
0: You know, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, uh, you talked about how policymakers really haven't gotten their heads around negative emissions. Have you seen this started to change, though? Have you seen any hopeful signs there, particularly following these recent reports that really pointed out how important uh, negative emissions is going to be?
1: Yes. There's certainly more understanding. So, you know, the, the first thing is you have to get some understanding and then you can start a discussion and then, you know, you follow the steps through. So I certainly think there's much more understanding on the need for negative emissions and the role they play in the scenarios. Um, because the special report on 1.5 degrees that we mentioned before outlined these four different um, pathways, they had four illustrative scenarios, one which had less negative emissions than the other ones, this is the one that many people have gravited, gravitated to, uh, which has very short-term reductions,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, very rapid short-term emission reductions. And then you sort of brings up these trade-offs. What is more feasible, direct air capture or negative emissions in 2050, 2100, or reducing emissions by 50% or more in a decade at the global level? So... I think those sorts of trade-offs between short-term reductions, negative emissions in the long term, and whether they're feasible is starting to be elevated as an important discussion. Um, Where that goes in the future, though, is, well, we'll just have to wait and see.
0: Glenn, thanks for talking.
1: that has been great. Thank you.
0: Today's guest has been Glenn Peters, Research Director at the Center for International Climate Research in Oslo, Norway. Listen to more Energy Policy Now podcasts on iTunes, Google Play Music, Amazon Alexa, and the Climate Center's website. Our web address is upen.edu. And for updates from the center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and have a great day.